Go ahead, grab your Bibles. Go to Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Hebrews chapter 8. So I made the promise last week, if you came to church this week, the Ravens would win, so congratulations. Well done. I'm going to keep my comments limited about that for right now. (laughs) I hope, I hope to celebrate with you, because that's what real love does. Um, So so this morning, as we get ready to look into Hebrews uh, chapter 8, one of the the key themes throughout this chapter um, is is a, a theme Uh, of pictures, of images. And so I don't know about you, I don't know what pictures are your favorite pictures, I don't know what pictures you have in the prominent places uh, in your uh, life, in your office, in your home, wherever that might be. I don't don't know what pictures you have up to make sure that that you're reminded of certain things or just because, you know, that picture means something to me. I I said this yesterday in the email, but but this new feature on the phone where where you can um, set it up so that every time you pick up your, your iPhone, you, you receive uh, a new picture, uh, and that's awesome to me. It's awesome to be able to pick it up, and like right now, the picture that's showing, and, 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 and I love my wife too much to actually put it on the screen, but <laughs> it's a picture of, of my wife looking at Arden, and Arden looking at my wife, and both of them having almost the exact same face, and, and, and there's, there's just something about being able to see that. I've got other pictures on there of being able to see my, my children when they were little, having that pop up and bringing back some of those memories. There's some pictures on there of of my children with, with their people now, right? Parents, you understand what that means when they get their own people and you're like, man, and those people are, are, are making my children smile the way that we dreamed and prayed and hoped that they would smile. And so we're able to, to see that and we're excited and enthusiastic about that. I don't know if a, a picture for you is something that's framed in your office. I don't know if a picture for you is just an object. So I'm not going to tell you details about it, but, but I've been asked a number of times. So, so what's up with the bracelet, Frank? Well, I'm very fashionable, that's why. Um, as the young people say, this is my drip. Just kidding. And I should never say that again, right? Okay, anyway. Um, but this, this is a precious thing to me, and I only wear it when I'm preaching. It's the only time I wear it. Not so that I look cool, but because there's a reminder that's written in it, actually. It's a gift from my wife reminding me that, that, that I'm accepted for who I am regardless of how, how I have danced for you. <laughs> right? There's pictures throughout the Scripture where, where Jesus communicates so often through pictures. I mean, you go through one chapter, and, and what you find in just a single chapter, a story, a picture of a woman who's lost a coin, and so she's sweeping the entire house out because she's got to find that coin. The picture of a son who, who leaves his home with his inheritance early, and daddy's standing on the porch just waiting for him to come back. And, and so pictures allow us to enter into the story. Pictures bring us into the emotion of the moment. Pictures, pictures communicate. And what we're told in Hebrews 8 is that the Old Covenant, and I'll explain what that is, it's not just the Old Testament, but the Old Covenant was jam-packed full of pictures that you and I need to pay attention to. Now, before we we get there, and and I'm cheating, I'm saying we're doing Hebrews 8, but just back up a couple verses, because I think this is really important to give us that running start into Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 7, the the author of Hebrews says this in verse 26, right? This is the kind of high priest we need. He's saying, listen, the other priests have failed in their duties. They've failed in their responsibilities. It's, 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 It's lacking. It's not giving us what we need. There is no perfection being given to us through the work of these priests. We need this kind of high priest, and he explains the character of this high priest. We need one that is 
I'll start with this one. Innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. We need, we need one that is different. In fact, so different, he is also holy. Holy is not a home like you and I picture. Holy is not the, the goody two-shoes. I can get myself in a lot of trouble, so I'm just going to stop right there. It's not that. Holy means being measured on a totally other scale. It, it, it means when you look at you and you put yourself next to God, you're like, well, he is holy, and I'm like right there. No, you're not. It's literally, it's not apples to oranges comparison either. It's apples to rocks. He is so unlike us. He is so holy and separate and distinct and different because he is perfect. And we are not. We need that kind of high priest, the author says. We need a high priest, verse 27, that doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day like the other ones do because they have to offer for their own sins and then for those of the people. So we, don't, we don't need a high priest that comes in and offers daily sacrifices. That's, that's not going not to help us. He doesn't, if he has to offer sacrifices for himself, well, what does that say about himself? He's not perfect, so how can he bring you perfection? If he needs to continually go back day after day after day and offer sacrifices, that means his sacrifices are not effective. And so, so the author of Hebrews is saying, we need a high priest who brings us perfection because if we get his perfection credited to our account, then we also gain access to God. We need this kind of high priest. Chapter 8, verse 1, listen to what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell you. Verse 1, now the main point of what is being said is this. Okay, stop right there. Come on. I mean, there's times you read Scripture like, I don't know what's happening. What's God trying to say to me? You read, you read actually, Peter at the end of 2 Peter. He makes a comment. He's like, y'all, y'all read Paul, right? Whew. Dude, smart, and I like the fish, so I have no idea what he's talking about. That, that, that's not, and actually that's not true because Peter actually got some of the most complicated verses in Scripture as well. This one you don't have to worry about. This one, he just comes right out of the gate. The author of Hebrews says real clearly, here is the main point. How simple can it be? Here it is. You ready? So if you're taking notes, this is your main point. We have this kind of high priest. I love that, right? He just finished saying, you know what we need? This is the kind of high priest we need, one that is holy and innocent and undefiled and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who doesn't bring offerings every day or repeatedly. And the author of Hebrews says, hey, guess what? <laughs> That's the one we've got now. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister, the sanctuary and true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not men. We have this high priest who sits at the right hand of God in the very presence of God. He is doing something the priests themselves could not do by being in the very presence of God. Here he is, Jesus Christ, after offering himself for our salvation, after offering his own body on the cross for your sins and mines, here he is alive and seated forever in heaven. But these priests that he's contrasted with, verse 3, these priests are appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering gifts prescribed by the law. These gifts, these priests, these sacrifices, these offerings serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things 
As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So, so the, 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 the things of the old covenant are a picture, a copy, a shadow of the things that are actually happening in heaven. This is why at the end of Exodus and the beginning of Leviticus, Moses is, is laying out these pictures. He's laying out the, the work, and, and God says to Moses, as you build the tabernacle, as you build the, 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 the basin, as you build the candlesticks, as you, as, you, as you form the Ark of the Covenant, as you hang the curtains, as you put rings for the curtains to hang from, as you do each and every one of these things, make very certain that you are following my instructions to the T. Because these are a picture of who God is. How, how <coughs> excuse me, how the, how the world views these things is going to be, is going to communicate how the world views God and his character. These things of the old covenant picture God's character. They picture the, the truth of our brokenness, the cost of our forgiveness, and the hope that we can have. But here's the problem with the Old Covenant. Corruption of the pictures settled in among the people. The prophets speak of it all over the place, you, particularly the minor prophets. You go, Hosea talked about it. Uh, Amos talked about it. Micah talked about it. Malachi talked about it. Ezekiel, Jeremiah talked about it. All these prophets spoke like this. They said, your life is so out of whack, and it is speaking so loudly that you come to me in worship, and I can't hear your worship because all I can hear is your life. You're bringing sacrifices. <clears throat> You're bringing sacrifices that are lame, that are defiled. You're bringing sacrifices that you wouldn't even give to your politicians as a gift because you'd be scared of how they'd react. But yet you bring those to me. <clears throat> the picture that you're painting by your incomplete life, the picture that you're painting by, by dishonoring the old covenant items, is a picture that says that God can be appeased by a checklist. You can live any way you want, Monday through Saturday. On Sunday, if you show up in church, you check the mark, and God's like, all good. You can treat your wife like dirt all week long, but you show up in church and sit next to her, check, God's good. You, you can be dishonoring and disrespectful and hateful online all week long, but you show up in church and sing these songs, God's like, good, check. So as the watching world looks at you in your life, but, but way worse than that, as the watching God looks at you in your life, what he sees is that you have corrupted what he has left as a picture to represent what he's done. But it's interesting, it's not just the minor prophets that talk about this. You actually see Jesus deal with this. Jesus come into the city of Jerusalem and he looks at the temple. And the temple is, is this place where it has this, this, this beautiful, beautiful construction. And Herod uh, rebuilt the temple in, in, around the time of Jesus. And so it was being constructed and, and being beautified as it was being uh, constructed outside the temple. Anybody could gather outside that temple. They would all show up in the court and they would, you know, maybe they would talk about their, their most uh, uh, recent understanding of Scripture. Maybe they would throw prayer requests to each other. Maybe they would debate with one another. I don't know what they would do, but they were able to stay outside in the courts. And then there was this, this wall that had been constructed that set off this place called the holy place. And in the holy place, there was, there was furniture. There were scrolls of Scripture. There were, 
different accoutrements that, that only the priest could go in and, 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 and handle and even see. And inside the holy place, there was yet another one called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was what is known as the mercy seat of God. There were two golden cherubim facing each other. And no one went into the Holy of Holies but for the high priest under the cover of blood once a year to make atonement for the sin of Israel. So here Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he comes to the Temple Mount and as he, as he rolls up, what he sees is just throngs of people. It's hopping because it's Passover and so, so you're, you're looking at hundreds upon hundreds of extra people showing up in Jerusalem to bring their Passover um, sacrifice. And the rule was you needed to bring a one-year-old male lamb with no blemish. No cuts, no scrapes, no chunks of fur missing or wool, woolly fur, whatever you want to call it. It couldn't, it, 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 so, so what happened is people would come hundreds of miles, many of them coming for days, even weeks, dragging this lamb from home to bring, and it needed to show up at the temple in perfection, absolutely free of any blemish, any bruise, any stain. It's hard to travel for a day with a child and have that happen. Forget a week and drag a lamb behind you. And so, hey, I got an idea. What a convenient option. We can travel, leave our lamb at home. We can show up at the temple complex and swipe our card and buy ourselves a lamb right there. We can, we can buy this perfect lamb right outside the temple that we can go and present it, and we don't have to worry about the hundreds of miles. We only have to walk a couple hundred yards. And so, so that became incredibly popular. So as you can imagine, because of the convenience, because of how much easier it was, you can imagine how the merchants jacked up their prices. So instead of paying what a normal lamb would cost, you would pay eight or nine times the amount that a normal lamb would cost. It's kind of like going to a baseball game and buying a hot dog. But it wasn't just the lamb that you had to purchase to give, but every male over the age of 30 was responsible to pay a temple tax. But you couldn't just show up and be like, here's my dollar bill. Oh, no, 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 no. You needed to use the special temple currency. So there were money exchanges there. So you could show up and turn your dollars into shekels. Oh, that's another great opportunity for the money changers, isn't it? Think about it. Pure profit. They can, they can make the exchange rate whatever they want to make it. So now, remember, the purpose of the temple picture was so that the sacrifices, the, the picture of the priests, the picture of the candlesticks, the picture of the altars, the picture of the, 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 the curtains, the picture of all the gold and all the decorations, the picture of the, the, the high priest's outfit, the, the, every picture was meant to show us how God was going to provide for the brokenness of man. But instead, when Jesus rolled up on the temple that day, what he saw was a temple that was picturing what it would be like in 2024 to go to a mall. And Jesus flipped the tables because the picture had been polluted. It wasn't imaging what the people needed to see. It wasn't imaging the fact that there's a holy God who can only be approached by means of 
God's perfect provision. So our author here is saying, listen, this picture served really well for a time, but it's been polluted. It's deficient. So look at verse 6, chapter 8. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for, for a second one. So here, so Jesus comes in, and suddenly everything that God's been trying to picture comes to life, flesh and blood. And through Jesus Christ, he mediates this new covenant, a better covenant. Okay, so now, now I've said it enough, but now, now we need to talk about what a covenant is, okay? A covenant... Is, is similar to what we would call a contract, um, a treaty even. It's each, each person making the covenant um, would, would get together and they would establish, okay, so what's the basis of our relationship? What are the conditions for our relationship? What are the promised outcomes of this relationship? What are the promised consequences if those conditions are not met? It's this, it is this, this sworn promise that should never be broken. And, and, and the old covenant... So what is the Old Covenant? Just, just picture Moses coming down off the mountain with the tablets. In the Old Covenant, the Israelites were required to obey God, keep the law, and God would protect them, and he would bless them. So, so the Old Covenant was, you please God, and everything will be okay. You please God, everything will be okay. Does anybody see a problem with that? Nobody can measure up to perfection. So what the old covenant resulted in was just a failure after a failure after a failure after a failure. Now, in covenantal language, that would mean the person who failed should be cut out of the covenant. The person who failed should be judged on the spot. But because God is who God is, he didn't stop. He continued to pursue them. Look at verse 8. God finding fault with his people, he says this. See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, where I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my, in my covenant. Here, here's, here's God in the book of Jeremiah. This is, that's where the quote's coming from. And he's saying, okay, there is coming this, this new covenant, a better covenant. And the terms for my relationship, God says, with you will be established. And here are the terms. Jesus Christ came to fulfill our end of the covenant. So, so, so he suffered the curses of a broken covenant by, by taking the, the, the beatings, by taking the, 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 the crucifixion on the cross, by willingly laying out his arms on that cross and having nails driven through his wrists, willingly having nails driven through his feet, having the crown of thorns placed upon his head, having people spit in his face, people call him every name imaginable, by people refusing to acknowledge that he was truly the Son of God. Jesus Christ came and he suffered the curses of the broken covenant that you should have suffered. Please remember that. And in the end, if you're found in him, you reap the blessings of the covenant because he's attributed them to you. He's given them to you. He's put them on your account. Because God is satisfied with the blood of Jesus. The new covenant is a gift to you. Jesus says that. This is the new covenant in my blood, he says during that last supper with his disciples. He's inaugurating the new covenant 
through the shedding of his blood. Um, the, the Hebrews should have known this was coming because Jeremiah was really clear about it. I mean, God says, I would, I would do anything for you. In fact, I did everything for you. The, the picture that he paints here in, in verse 9, on the day I took my people by their hand, I led them out of the land of Egypt, and, and I showed no concern for them because they didn't continue in my covenant. It's the, it's the picture of I got you by your hand, and we're going to walk out of Egypt together, and look at this, let's celebrate, I saved you, I saved you, high five, that's great. And then at some point, God turns around, and they've taken off. They've pursued other gods. That's the picture of how people can screw up a covenant. That's the picture of, of, of what is said many times. Church would be awesome if it wasn't for people. We just get in the way. The old covenant looked like this. God gave his people an opportunity to experience his mercy and his grace. God then mercied and graced his people. And then his people simply walked away. But because God is so very good, he pursued. Here's the Here's what the new covenant does. Look with me, verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen, that's a key word, and each his brother or sister, that's key, saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. I don't know if you are a person who writes in your Bible, but if you are a person who writes in your Bible, you should circle, highlight, underline, exclamation point every time God says, I will, in that text. I will, I will, I will, I will. There are four key things we see about the new covenant that come out of this. The very first thing he says is this, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So, so listen, in the Old Covenant, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what is explained to the people is this is what you need to do. You need to take the, the law and, and you need to put it on your doorpost. You need to put it on your fence post. You need to put it on your gate. In fact, what I want you to do is take the law and I want you to write it in such a way that it's on your wrists. I want you, to, you actually have to wear a box that was stuck to the top of your head that has the law in it. I want it ever before your eyes. I don't ever want you to go someplace where you can't see the law. So, so, so that's called a, a merism. Okay? A merism is you take all of the extremes and it means all the time. So all the time, what I need you to do is I need you to be walking so that you are constantly reminded of what you are supposed to be doing. Here is the problem with the Old Covenant. You see it everywhere. You can't ignore it. And what happens is you are reminded of what you are not doing. You go to the airport, check your luggage. Yeah. If, you're like, if you're like me, you get in line for security, you start you know, shoes off, belt off. I mean, like half-dressed, standing there waiting to get through security. And as you enter towards the TSA agent, what you see is a giant sign that says, no liquids past this point. And you know what starts happening? Do I have liquids? I don't think I have liquids. How much liquids? I mean, I think I, I, I've got deodorant. Is that liquid? Toothpaste. Oh, no. Can I blow up a plane with toothpaste? 
I mean, what, do I have liquids? What am I going to do? I'm not sure what's going to happen. Or, or better yet, no weapons past this point. And you're like, do I have a weapon? Do I even own a weapon? But, but, but we freak out because we see the sign reminding us of what we're not supposed to do. That's the weakness of the old covenant. It's a fear-based response. Don't do that. You're, you're going to violate the, the, the character of a holy God. Don't do that. And what God says is, no, 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 the new covenant is I'm going to write it. I'm going to put it in your minds. I'm going to write it on your hearts. Instead of sticking it in front of you to remind you of how you have failed it, I'm going to write it inside of you. Whatever God requires of you. At that moment that you come to Christ, that moment you are in Jesus Christ, you are given an enabling power. And it's not just a force. It's not just a wind. It's not just a, 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 a dunamis power. It is a person. His name is the Holy Spirit. He is brought into your life and he enables you to do that law that is coming out of your heart that he is in there representing, saying, no, 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 no. Hey, hey, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Or, hey, hey, see that person? You should definitely do that. God will never call you to do something he will not enable you to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. He is going to put his law in your mind and in your hearts. You don't need to see it to know what it is you're supposed to do. You don't need to see it and read it to know what it is you're not supposed to do. Your obedience to his law that is now written in your hearts is going to flow from something other than fear. It's going to flow out of the transformation of a heart as the Holy Spirit continues to sanctify you, change you, mold you, shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. Frank. I can't tell you how many times I, I, I failed this week. I, ca I can't tell you how many times I screwed up. I can't tell you how many times I sinned again. I, I know. I know. We'll get there. The second thing, not only will he put the law in our hearts, or in our minds and write it on our hearts, he says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I... Even the most introverted and, and solitary person I've ever met has a deep, innate desire to belong to something. That's what makes sports such a big deal. I mean, come on. You, you go to a stadium with 50-something thousand people, people you've never met. You have absolutely nothing in common with it. In fact, before the game, you're sitting next to them like, oh, I cannot believe I need to be next to this guy for the next three hours. Right? Come on. Be honest. I'm not the... Am I just a horrible pastor? Come on. Y'all do the same thing. You're like, and they walk in, you're like, please don't sit next to me. Please don't sit next to me. Hey, good to see you. Nice to see you. Great. Right? Come on. And you're like, you're just offended and violently like, this guy is horrible. And halfway through the first quarter, you're giving him a hug. And you're like, yeah, this is the year. Because every single one of us has this innate desire to belong to something. You see it in athletics. You see it. In fashion, oh my goodness, it cracks me up, and I'm, I'm, I am officially that age, where I look at a lot of our young people like, I love you, just be you. They're like, I am being me, I want to be different, and why are you dressing like everybody else? Because you want to be a part. You want to be a part. Now get this, God says, this is the beauty of the new covenant. In Jesus Christ, you are mine. You belong to me. And I'm not ashamed. 
I'm not ashamed to have you call me your God. Think about that for a second, parents. Have your children ever been ashamed to call you their parent? If not, you're not trying hard enough. God says, I don't, I don't care. In fact, Hebrews 11 is going to talk about that very specifically. God is not ashamed to have those people call him their God. Frank, you don't understand. You know how often I've screwed this up today? You know how many times I yelled at my family? You know how many times I, I yielded to the selfishness in my heart? Oh, I know. God says he'll be your God, and you'll be his people. And we'll deal with that sin thing in a minute. The next thing he promises. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister, saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Okay, this one can get confusing, so just bear with me for a second. You ready? So wait, 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 wait. I'm not supposed to tell people they should know God? I thought the Bible tells me I'm supposed to go out and tell people about Jesus Christ. I'm supposed to evangelize. You are. That's not what this is talking about. So don't use this as you're out. Because God's watching. <laughs> That's not what this is. This is talking about your citizens, uh, your brother or sister. I don't need to walk up to a citizen of America and be like, you should be an American. They're like, I, I am, I thought. I mean, nowadays you never know, but sure, maybe. Or your brother, you should be in our family. Am I adopted? No, 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 you're, you're, you're a part of, that's what he's saying. He's saying, they're talking about those who are in Christ. You don't need to tell them, man, you need to get to know the Lord. You need to get to know the Lord. Hey, get this. This is what he says. From the least of these to the greatest of these, they already will know him if they're in Christ. So what he's saying is, I don't care if you're six or 60. I don't care if you're a theologian or the thief on the cross. Both of you get to know him. Do you know do you know that our littlest believer here at Uniontown Bible Church knows the Lord? The one who created, the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who is holy and set apart, the one who is forever in heaven, the one who is eternal and infinite, omniscient, omnipotent. A little four-year-old in there says, yeah, that's my God. That's because of the new covenant. It's not a future level of someday I'll really know him. It's not this, this knowledge that's brought on by, by study and discipline or, or even degrees, master's degrees. This is a moving of the Holy Spirit in you when he brings you from death to life. Now, absolutely, maintain that relationship. You, you dive into it. You get to know him better. That's what you do when you're in a relationship. But the point of this is this. You don't need to do in order to know and be known. You sure he knows me? I mean, you, you, you wouldn't even say out loud the things that I am entangled with right now. You, you sure God knows me? You sure it could be said that I'm his when, when that addiction, when, when I've thought those thoughts? Yeah, you know why I know that? Because of what comes next. 
Not only will God put his law into your mind and write them on your heart, not only did God say, I'll be your God and you will be my people, not only does he say, you can know the Lord from the least to the greatest of these, he says this, verse 12, please don't skip this. Highlight, circle, underline, emblazon verse 12 in your scripture. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Oh. Under the old covenant, forgiveness was never final and forever. You had to come back to that temple year after year after year during the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 so the, the high priest could, could continually slaughter an animal and place the blood of the sacrifice on the altar in the Holy of Holies so, so, so then you could walk away and be like, all right, we're good for now. And you wouldn't even make it home before you knew there was a reason for yet another sacrifice. Each person that attended the Day of Atonement, including the high priest, knew that, 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 that with future sins there was need for another future sacrifice. We're going to talk about this later in a couple of weeks. The, the blood of bulls and goats could never perfectly purge their consciousness. They could never perfectly purge their sins. They could never offer and bring true salvation and forgiveness to them. But the new covenant established by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins altogether and forever have been forgiven, past, present, and future. And it was so effective that when Jesus was done, rose again on that awesome scene off the top of the mountain, ditching the disciples and saying, get to work, boys, he shows up in heaven, walks in, says, hi, Dad, and sits down. Oh, because it's done. It's forever finished. Okay, you know the rule. Y'all got to clap or nobody clap. So either discipline somebody out or everybody clap. Okay, there you go. <laughs> We have this eternal high priest who doesn't have to wait a year to go back in. But he regularly and constantly intercedes on our behalf. Um, all right, so years ago, years and years ago, uh, I was at a dinner with a whole mess of pastors. Um, that's what they call us, you know, a flock of geese, mess of pastors. Um, there's... <laughs> And, and one guy, and we just started talking about, about this, this kind of this idea. And this whole discussion started in this picture, and I have never been able to get it out of my head. And, and it's funny, is I, I will spot listen to some of these pastors as, as I'm driving or whatever. Just, and these guys who are sitting at the table with me just listening to what they're preaching on and trying to encourage them and be encouraged by them. And, and, and there's so many times this very illustration that I'm about to share comes up. So, so I have no idea who to credit with this illustration because it was all of us. So I think we should all write a book and split the money. Um, but here's the picture, okay? Most infants becoming toddlers start to walk, not because they decided to walk, but because they leaned too far and the momentum of their giant head took them. And in order to try to save their lives, they tried to keep their little feet underneath their head wherever they went. And we're like, they're walking! It's like, no, they're surviving. Okay? But what's amazing about that is you watch that little bugger start to walk and you're like, oh, this is awesome. And then they fall. And you know what we do? Yay! Right? We don't go like, I can't believe you fell! I can walk, why can't you? Right? I mean, maybe some parents do, and actually you could pick out which kids those were, to be honest with you. Um, but every time they take a few steps, we're just like, yeah, yeah, and, 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 and then, then fall. 
You don't get angry. You don't get disappointed. You celebrate the steps. Help them back up. So our, our, our beautiful little girl, our, toddling around like crazy, she can walk. Um, we did find out in the snow she prefers to just flop into it, but that's more of a game than an inability. She does have a tendency right now, though. Um, she's still new to this. Uh, she doesn't watch where she's walking. Now, to be honest, neither do I, so I understand where she gets it. And so many times we'll be watching her, and it's like, oh, oh, falls down. You know what I don't do? Come on! You've been doing this like, what, six months now? <laughs> now, sometimes those collisions are violent. There's some blood, maybe some tears. I'm not angry that she fell. I'm all about kissing the boo-boos, getting Band-Aids on until the tears are gone, and then encouraging her to get back up again. You know what happens? Those little kids do just that. And over time, it's a little further, and then after some time, it gets some flair in there, which you know, after eight, nine, ten months of walking, you know what's crazy? They still fall down. Can you believe it? Come on. So disappointing. No, it's not. They still figured it out. That's the way the Father sees you, friend. That's a product of him forgiving your wrongdoing and never again remembering your sins. You do know how deep that last phrase is, right? I will never again remember your sins. I mean, that's easy for you or I to say. You're talking about an omniscient God, one who knows all, sees all, has been in all, around all. Nothing surprises him. There's nothing he doesn't know. How can that God look at you and say, I'm never going to remember you sin? You know how? It takes a deliberate act of God. And that deliberate act of God is called mercy. The beauty of the new covenant is that God has sent to us the one who can show us mercy that we need. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. And though he falls, he'll not be utterly cast down. You know why? Because he's got dogged determination. No. Because the Lord upholds him with his hand. Hey, friend, when God says, I will be their God, they will be my people, that means he's walking with you as you bump into walls. I will. I will, I will, God says. And today we celebrate that he did. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for the precious gift we have in this, this covenant that's been inaugurated through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you that although we, we may wrestle, we may struggle, we may bounce into walls an awful lot, that, that God, your mercy and your forgiveness are real. Now, God, not everybody sitting here is, is, is in the new covenant. Not everybody here is in Jesus Christ. So I pray that right now, even as they consider 
their own life, that they would understand that, that what they're seeing each and every day is just a manifestation of what's in them, their sinfulness being proven by each poor decision, each immoral concept, each thing that they pursue after that is not you, then God, I ask that you would allow them to be humble and fall on their faces before you and confess that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to die in their place so that they might have peace, reconciliation, and hope with you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the mercy that he gives to us. It's in his matchless, wonderful, beautiful name I pray. Amen.